What is the mission of the church? Uh, most people would say, say that discipleship and evangelism are at the heart of that mission, and I would agree 100%. Um, last week we talked about the need for true discipleship and doctrinal purity of the church. Uh, this week we'll be focusing on the other side of the mission of the church, namely evangelism. So however, however before moving forward, I think that we have a, a strong temptation in today's world to be pragmatic about evangelism. And don't get me wrong, there's definitely some pragmatic steps of evangelism, but we can sometimes rely on all of the resources we have. We have tons of great resources to hand out, to use, uh, you know, even, even ways of sharing the gospel, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Three Circles, um, just the Romans Road, the bridge. There's so many different ways we can share the gospel. Uh, there's resources that we can purchase that will help us do that. Uh, there's all kinds of ideas of how to reach the community, how to do these things. And these are great things. They are great, great things. However, these amazing helps in evangelism don't replace the most amazing helper with a capital H, meaning the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't want to forget the most important aspect of evangelism, uh, that we cannot save even one soul on our own. By, by our own works, we cannot save ourselves, and we cannot save anyone else. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, he draws, He saves, and He seals. And because of this great truth, our evangelism must always begin with and continue on with prayer as we, learn, as we lean on the Lord uh, in complete reliance on Him. So let's read our scripture today as we learn more about how we can be on mission for Christ in our world. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, going through verse 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a, as a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your scripture, for your word. Uh, this these seven verses have so much theology um, that, are, that are just packed in this. Uh, there's just, we could preach multiple sermons on, on just one of these verses, God. And so I just pray that you help me to, to speak clearly today, that you open up our minds and our hearts to hear your word. God, I pray that we have sharp, keen minds this morning because there's just a lot of meat here to chew on. And God, I just pray that we, we come to the scriptures today um, casting everything else aside. I know we have a lot of things going on in our lives. I know uh, there, there are struggles that we're fighting, things we have in our families, things that we have at work, things we have with our children, things we have maybe at school or whatever, where, whatever we are. Um, there's things going on. Uh, maybe it's health, maybe it's something else. But God, may we cast all of that aside and focus in on your word this morning. May you preach clearly through me. And may it be your word and not mine. We love you, Lord. Amen. So today we're going to see three things. Back to the three points. Just wanted to let you know I'm back to the three points. I know we got along comfortable with those two. Um, but so, so we're going to see three things uh, that are pivotal to spreading the gospel. And the first of these is, number one, the spread of the gospel depends on prayer. The spread of the gospel depends on prayer. I'm going to reread verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So as we discussed in the introduction, prayer is pivotal and foundational to the spread of the gospel. Uh, and actually, Paul urges 
Timothy to pray for all people, and he starts off with this phrase, first of all, meaning of prime importance. It's like putting, putting a spotlight right on that verse, saying, hey, make sure you focus in on prayer. This is the most important place to start and the most important place to continue. He's reminding Timothy not to forget about the importance of prayer. And this Greek word for all in this section, we're going to see it multiple times, is pas, is, is the word here. And it means every or all. Uh, and it, it occurs six times in the first six verses of this chapter. We're going to see this as a theme and a repetitive use uh, of this word throughout the, uh, the, the, these verses. The concept of all is one of the main themes. It spreads, and it says that the spread of the gospel is to be for all people. But, then how, but how then should we pray for all people? It's kind of a, a unique way, pray for all people. Well, understanding the, the different aspects of prayer will help us understand how we should pray for all people. And Paul uses this series. He has four words here. Uh, the second of these words is really just the word prayer. It kind of is an all-encompassing word, so we're not going to go through that. We've talked about prayer multiple times. But he gives three other words here that discuss this two-way conversation we've discussed before. Uh, that It's not just praying to God, but it's also hearing from God through his word. That's why we bring the scripture in. Bible reading and prayer need to go hand in hand. Uh, it's a two-way conversation, as we've mentioned many times. But he's going to give us three kind of practical aspects of prayer. And the first one, he says, we are to pray with supplication. We are to pray with supplication. Maybe not a word we use a ton. Uh, if you're not used to being in the church, especially you're like supplication, probably not a word that you hear very often. But this word means a request or petition. And it's used some 12 times in Paul's letters. Uh, the term understands that we are in need. Uh, we lack what is necessary for life and for a certain task without the Lord. And we plead to him to provide what we cannot provide on our own. Uh, this, this is really an endless application. Uh, we can think about daily bread, shelter, food, clothing, everything. We need all of this in order to survive. And apart from God's blessing, we don't have it. Uh, consider things even such as the air and water that he provides. We are a needy people. Uh, we like to be prideful, but apart from God giving us air, we're, do we're done. You know, our life is over. But God is so gracious that he gives air even to those who hate him. How amazing is our God? How merciful is our God? However, in the context of this chapter, as we're going to see in a moment, this, this concept is being directly applied to the spread of the gospel. We cannot save anyone, only Christ can, as we've already mentioned, and only by his power and grace can our requests and petitions come to fruition. Listen to Paul in Philippians 4, 6. I love this verse here. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, be made known to God. There's that word supplication, and we're, and we're told to, to make our supplications, our requests, known to God. He wants to hear them. So when we go to God in prayer, sometimes we can be like, ah, oh, you know, he doesn't want to be bothered by me. He's got billions of other people to listen to, right? But he wants to hear from you, and he's not limited. It's not like he has, uh, he's, he's looking at his watch saying, oh, I'm almost done with you. I got to go to the next person. He is transcendent and limitless. He can hear from everyone at once and handle it all. You're not bothering God. He wants to hear from you. How amazing is that the God of the universe, the God that created you, wants to have a personal relationship with you and hear what you have to say. And number two, we are to pray with intercession. We are to pray with intercession. This, this is a lot like supplication, but there's one big difference. Intercession is on behalf of another. It's asking God for something on behalf of another. Uh, the Greek word used here is actually only twice in the New Testament. It's also in 1 Timothy 4, 5. But the verb form of this is used fairly often. And we actually see it used in regards to the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ himself. So let's read a couple of verses where we see this. 
I was here Jesus Christ be, being used in this word intercession. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ intercedes on, on our behalf. How amazing is that? And we're going to see there's even a bigger word we're going to see in a moment that he does for us too. But the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. We see in Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness, for we do, not know what, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So that even the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf like Christ does. So we're to follow this, this model of intercession that we see in the Holy Spirit, we see in Jesus Christ, as we throw up prayers in Christ's name for other people. Uh, we're not a mediator. We're going to talk about this in a moment. We're not to mediate on behalf of other people, but we are to, in, to pray intercessory prayers to Jesus Christ. Those prayers go through Jesus Christ, who is our inter great intercessor and great mediator. But we're going to go into more detail on that in the next point. Uh, finally, we see, number three, we are to pray with thanksgiving. We are to pray with thanksgiving. I think this is oftentimes people's prayers are like power, lack thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is, is like the, 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 the oil or the gasoline that really makes prayer go. And the reason Thanksgiving makes prayer go is because it gives us faith and trust in Jesus Christ because we see what he's done before, and so we know what he can do. When we read his word and we see him part the Red Sea, we're like, wow, how amazing is that? When we see him you know, just miraculously save people, miraculously heal people, do these crazy, amazing things, then that little thing we're asking about seems really, really small compared to what he has done and what just the fact that he created the earth, thanking him for air. I mean, how amazing is that? If oxygen wasn't 21%, then we would all die. Like we, we wouldn't have enough oxygen uh, to live or we'd have so much that it causes free radicals and it would destroy us. I mean, so God knew everything and he, did, he holds it all in his hands. And that verse in Philippians 4, 6, we see these two words, two of these words we've just mentioned paired together. And I think they're paired together for a reason. Supplication with what? thanksgiving. Uh, why are these words paired together so often? Because we can ask our Heavenly Father with greater faith when we reflect in thanksgiving for what he's already done. It, it will help us to have faith and not doubt, as James warns us. We shouldn't ask and doubt. We should not doubt God's ability, his, his, his ability to do anything. And so we need to ask with confidence, knowing who he is and what he's already done. So now we discuss the importance of prayer in evangelism. We're going to see number two, the spread of the gospel transcends all persons, transcends all persons. Let's start in verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So our evangelistic prayers and outreaches should be directed to all persons. And then Paul goes on to, to kind of describe who all people are. Not only are we to pray for those who are in our lives, like our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, we think about those people, we're also to pray for the leaders of our world, and sometimes we're, we're guilty of that, not doing that, right? The Bible's clear that God ordains those who are in charge. Romans 13, 1 is a tough verse. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from who? From God. And those that exist have been instituted by who? God. Yeah, so the gospel knows no boundaries. It's open for all, even ungodly leaders. We must remember that we are in a spiritual battle, and politicians and world leaders are not our enemy. The, the Satan is our enemy. Him and his demons are our enemy. And sometimes we can get so focused on these, these ungodly leaders that we miss the fact that there's a real enemy, that those people are actually victims of the enemy himself, and they need to be saved as well. Uh, it, it's justifiable to pray that godly leaders are elected and ungodly leaders 
would not be reelected, right? It'd be amazing to have a country and even a world that was run by all godly, Bible-believing people. That's an amazing, awesome, amazing thing. But in the meantime, we should pray for, for the salvation of our worldly leaders. We should pray that they repent and be saved and that God would direct them to make godly decisions. Those are tough prayers sometimes. Uh, Paul then, going back to that verse again in, in 1 Timothy 2, 2, he gives a practical reason why we should pray for them. Hey, good leadership allows for a peaceful and quiet life. You know, in America, we've been blessed with, with pretty good leaders over the years, and so we, we're given freedom to come and worship. In a lot of countries, we couldn't just gather like we do right now. And so we, we, live, we can live in a godly and more dignified way. We can spread the gospel more easily if we have good leadership. We have godly leadership, so we should pray for that. And then, then we see Paul go on in verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Uh, God is glorified and pleased when his saints pray regularly for who? Just some people? No, all people. He wants us to pray for all people. God wants us to pray for everyone. I know this is tough to consider, but we're even to pray for those awful world leaders. Uh, those people like, like Vladimir Putin of Russia, or Kim Jong-un of North Korea, or President Xi Jinping of China. We should pray that they repent and come to Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. We understand these are difficult prayers. We know that, that we, we also are to pray for God's justice, right? His, that righteousness roll down like a river. We see in, in Romans, I think it's Romans 12, yeah, 19, we see that it is God's to avenge. It's his to repay, saith the Lord. It's not our job to, to avenge. God will avenge all evil. It will be taken care of. But in the meantime, we're to overcome evil with Good, Romans 12, 21. And what are we told is good and pleasing in the sight of God? We're told that praying for the salvation of all people is what is good and pleasing. And, and this prayer of intercession that, he, that God asks us to offer up for all people is congruent with the very nature of God, as we see in verse 4. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God. We're talking about God. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is an incredible verse in the Bible. God desires all people to be saved. We're going to hit on the practical nature of this verse in our final point, but I want to take a quick moment to see, to talk about uh, the balance of this verse in the whole of Scripture. Uh, this verse brings up an important doctrine called soteriology. Have anybody heard of that verse, or that word uh, soteriology? And what it means is the study of salvation and how it occurs. It, it's a, it's a very deep subject, and it's, important, it's an important doctrine because it will have practical implications on how we preach the gospel to others, how we share the gospel with others. Sadly, there's a lot of people who let their doctrinal leanings and their, their experience and their, that cloud their hermeneutics as they interpret this verse. That word hermeneutics, remember, that was how we interpret Scripture. Uh, some fall into this trap called universalism. I'm sure you all have heard of that. Jesus died on the cross, so now everybody's saved. doesn't matter if you repent or you turn from it. You, everyone's saved. You can go live your life the way you want. Jesus died on the cross. Everyone is saved. And they'll take a verse like this and take it out of context. They'll say, hey, God desires all people to be saved, and so everyone's in. We know this is a, a heretical doctrine. It is way out of bounds. It is not a part of evangelical Christianity. It's not a part of Christianity to begin with because Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. We must go through Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. We must be born again, as John 3 states. We know that that's, un, that's not right. But then others fall into this trap of free will thinking. 
um, where it negates the sovereignty of God altogether. And so you have all the power. This is kind of a humanistic theology where, where it all relies on you. Salvation is all on you. You must choose God. There's, you know, God is not really involved in that. You, know, you, you have all the power in yourself to make that. And this puts all the, hands, all the power in the hands of man and negates God's sovereignty. And that is also out of bounds. Listen to these verses about God's sovereignty. And this kind of gives us a good idea of his power and authority and how he works. Let's think about Romans 8.28. We think of this as a very positive verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, that's a promise from God. It's an absolute promise that he will work it out. Now, that good may not be on this side of eternity. You may have persecution. You may be killed for the gospel, but that will still be for your good eternally. Um, those who are martyred for the faith are actually exalted in heaven. It's actually a blessing to be martyred for the faith. I know most of us aren't signing up for that, but you know, to be to to go to the you know to go to uh, a martyrdom is is an honor as a Christian. But God always keeps His promises. So if everything works out for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus, God must be in charge. He must be in control in order to make sure that that good works out, or he would be lying. This would not be a promise that he would be able to keep. He must be in control. Lamentations 3, 30, uh, 37 through 39 states this, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. God's full sovereignty there. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. Here we see that God disciplines those who sin. We see a sovereign will overall, and then we see his sovereignty over salvation in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We understand in the book of Ephesians here that God has chosen and predestined those who would come to him. Wow, that's tough. This, this shows the absolute power and authority of God. He is all-powerful. And you can't ex explain away his power and his authority. We can't explain away his sovereignty. It is very clear in there. God is in control. But we must also not miss the fact that man is made in the image of God. That we have a will. That we're able to choose right. That we're able to choose wrong. We're not robots, right? God is fully sovereign, yet man is fully responsible for his actions and what we do. And this is where this verse in verse 4 makes the most sense. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We must also understand that verses like this, that God desires for all men to be saved. Uh, this truth refers to the gospel in its entirety. Uh, the faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross, rose three days later, and now is the right hand of the Father. God desires that all people be saved, that they are born again. That is his desire. So how do we manage this apparent tension? We see we have a sovereign God who will fulfill every single promise that he's ever made. Everything he says comes to fruition. But we see that God has a desire that doesn't come to fruition. So how, how do we marry those two? And the, the reason is God's desire is consistent with who, who God is. So God is just, but God is also what? He's love. He's both. But God does not delight in judging people and sending them to hell. And you're like, well, why does he do it? But let's, let's look at, at, at this thing right here. Because he's fully just is why he has to do it. Because God is fully just, but also fully loving. But God does not delight in that. Let's look at God's desire, the, op the opposite of God's desire in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And let's see it even more clearly in verse 32. 
For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God's desire is that we all, all of humanity, turns to him, repents of their sins, and lives. God desires all. This word pas is just throughout here six different times. God desires all to be saved. We see in John 3, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved what? The whole world. Salvation is offered to all people. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, where you're from, who your mom or dad is, what, what nation you lead, how, even how evil that you are. Look at Paul. He was a murderer, a blasphemer. He was saved by God. Listen to Jesus have a desire that the Jews would turn from their sins before they crucified him in Matthew 23, 37. We're going to see a desire of Christ that's not fulfilled on earth. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. So although Christ desired that the Jews would repent and come and turn to him, they still crucified him. This was because God's desire and God's decreed will are separate. So let's kind of discuss this real quick. God's desire. These are the things that are, are consistent with God's character. God desires sinlessness and perfection. God desires man to repent and sin no more. Then we have God's decreed will. Now, these are things that will happen no matter what. So consider the coming of Christ and the prophecies therein. Everything that God promises comes to fruition. So now we've discussed both sides, God's desire and God's sovereignty. We've got to take a step back and humble ourselves before him. Now, this is one of those times where, where churches even divide over this issue. Well, God is fully sovereign. No, man is, is fully responsible. And there's, and there's huge splits that, that separate these two camps. Oh, I'm, I'm a hardcore Calvinist, or oh, I'm an Arminian. Uh, you know, and there's, there's these huge doctrinal divides, frankly, because of what I would consider pride. And I know that sounds, I'm not trying to judge my friends on both sides. Love them both. And I think they both have some, some things that they, they can bring to the table when it comes to Scripture. And there's debates all the time. But I think we've got to realize we can't fully understand the might of God. We can't fully understand his salvation and how he saves. We know what we need to know. God has made it apparent that we have to preach the gospel. We have to tell people about Jesus Christ. We have to present the gospel. No one has believed unless they've heard. So it's our job, Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all nations. But we also know that we can't save anyone. God must draw them, as Jesus has already told us in the Scripture, John 14. Unless, unless somebody is drawn, they cannot come to God. God is sovereign. He draws, but also says He draws all men. All men. He desire, and He desires all men to come to the knowledge of God, but we know that some aren't going to. And we know that He is transcendent. He is before creation. He is after, we, after this is all destroyed. He, he, he transcends all time. So it, it just blows our mind. We cannot understand his ways. So we must hold, hold firm to what we know. God is fully sovereign, yet man is responsible for what he does. They seemingly contradict. How, how do we marry these two things? We don't understand them completely. But may we not try to fill in the gaps with our own understandings, with our own leanings, and, and maybe say, well, I'm going to ignore these verses so that I can, I can put it into this pretty box and make people think I'm smart and then I've got it all figured out. Figured out. If you hear somebody that says they've got the entire Bible figured out, they're lying. Because they don't. I mean, you know, we, we, we cannot figure everything out. There are, we, we see through a glass dimly. 1 Corinthians 13, the end of it. We see through it dimly. We can't see everything, but God lets us see what we need to see. We need to see that Jesus is the only way for salvation. Amen? He, what we need to see that we need to understand that completely, and that is 
crystal clear in the scripture. Anyone that disagrees with that is not reading their Bible correctly. They're not reading it at all, probably. Uh, you know, we, we understand that we are to tell people about Jesus. That's super clear in scripture. Uh, we understand that God, he saves, he, 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 he draws, he saves, he seals, he delivers. It's all by him. It's not by works. That's very, very clear in scripture. So we can grasp a hold of salvation and God's teaching on salvation, but then realize where our human limitation kicks in, where we don't understand how he does it completely. And, and we must trust him with the rest. We need to hold fast to what is clear, and then we need to kind of open-handedly say, okay, I don't, I don't fully understand how he does all this. We need to be humble before that. Moving on, we get to the, to the beautiful part of this, this scripture here. And number three, the spread of the gospel amends all punishment. And again, this is for those who are saved not universalism. I kind of put that little bracket in there just to make sure somebody didn't miss that. The spread of the gospel amends all punishment for those who are saved. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Can you see how there could be so many sermons and all this? Like that last point could have been probably a two-hour discussion on God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We could talk about that forever but we'd probably run in circles, and we finally realize, eh, God is sovereign and man's responsible, and that's where we would end, and I've studied this for countless hours and days and weeks and months and years, and that's where I continue to come to. It's like, I believe the whole scripture. I can't explain away one with another, but now we come to this, and we have, for there is one God, meaning there is, we know there's one God, right? The Trinity, that'd be another discussion for quite some time. Jesus is God. God is God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit is God, three in one. That is beautiful, but we see that clearly articulated here, for there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, and Jesus is our only mediator. There's one mediator. There's no requirement for Mary to mediate for us. There's no requirement for another saint, maybe even a dead saint, which is like, I don't think they're listening. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're chilling in heaven. They don't really care what you have to say right now. That's Jesus's job to listen to you. That's not theirs. And so, so we don't need a saint. We don't need a dead relative to mediate for us. We don't need our mom to mediate for us. We have one mediator, and it is, we don't need a priest to mediate for us. That one mediator is Jesus Christ. And the words mediator and intercessor can be kind of confusing in English because there's some overlap between them. But the, the New Testament's clear that the, the word mediator is only used in the New Testament about Jesus Christ. We see it here, and we see it at Hebrews 8, 6, 9, 15, and 12, 24. Christ is our only true mediator between us and God, meaning that he is the, the true, uh, the only one that can intervene and, uh, on our behalf and reconcile us to God. Our job, as we mentioned, uh, the first point is to pray intercessory prayers, but who do we pray those intercessory prayers toward? Through Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator. And in a sense, Christ is actually uh, the answer to Job's cry for a mediator. If you've studied the book of Job, uh, in chapter 9, verse 33, Job says this. He's conversing with God. There is no arbiter between us who, may lay, who might lay his hand on us both. Job realizes his insignificancy in the presence of God. And we should all recognize our insignificancy in the presence of God. He is perfect, holy, righteous. We are not. We are sinful and dirty. And Job says, if only there was a mediator there, if only there was someone that I could really talk with, that, that would be an arbiter between us, that would reconcile us together. And this is a great messianic verse, looking to the one great mediator who would be that arbiter, that mediator between God and man. Now we are able to approach the throne of grace with what? 
confidence, not because of how great that we are, but because of how great our mediator is, Jesus Christ. And verse 6 tells us why he can be our mediator. Why can he be our mediator? Because he gave his life as a ransom for us all. And, and the word ransom here is a price that is paid to gain the freedom or the redemption of someone. It refers to the substitutionary atoning death of Christ on the cross for our sins. He paid the ransom for us. He bought us back from death. We deserved death, we deserved hell, and he paid our penalty on the cross. And who has this offer of redemption given? Who has their ransom paid if only they will accept this free gift? Verse 5 and 6 says this again. Who gave himself up, or who, who, who gave himself as a ransom for who? For all. There it is again, that word pos. Salvation is available to everyone. As we share the gospel, in light of 1 Timothy 2, 4, which we mentioned before, we can, we can confidently tell others, and we can, as we preach the gospel, we can tell them the following. Christ died on the cross for you. He desires, Jesus Christ, God the Father, desires that you be saved. And we can say that confidently to anyone, even the most heinous of criminals, even the worst person you can think of. He desires that you be saved. But before we get to that point, maybe you need to hear that today. Christ desires you to be saved. Christ died on the cross for you. I've been talking about the mission of the church being evangelism, how we need to preach the gospel to the lost, tell other people, but, but maybe you haven't actually been saved. Maybe you haven't actually thought about the fact that he died on the cross for you as he, as he stood there, as he, laid, or as he was upright on the cross, as he hung there on the cross, and he eventually said, it is finished. It was your salvation that was finished. And he desires you to be saved. If, if you have not done that, make today the day of salvation. I would love to talk to you during our time of reflection, uh, after, uh, while we're singing at the end, or even after the service, if you just want to chat for a little while. He bore the penalty on the cross for your sins. Although this free gift is universally offered, meaning it's offered to everyone, that all is universally offered, it is only effective for those who repent and believe and put their faith and trust in him for salvation. Salvation is universally offered but exclusively obtained through Christ Jesus. For those of you who are saved, remember this great truth. He died for even your worst of enemies. Even the person that you may, eh, which is sinful, hate. You may just like, that's the last person I ever want to see. I have hatred, which we know that's murder. That's in, their, in our heart. We're talking about that. In our, we'll get to that probably in our Respectable Sins book. It'll be probably one of the chapters with anger, hate. It is, it is a bad thing. But there are people that you're like, there's no way they could be saved. That's the last person on earth that could be saved. How many people thought of that about Paul? I mean, if they really thought, like, well, who's the last person on earth that's going to be saved? Paul. He's actually literally going and killing Christians, helping people, other people kill Christians at least. We know for sure. But we know that he offers salvation to the foremost of sinners, even the Pauls, the murderers, the blasphemers. Share the good news of the gospel even for the last person you think would accept it. Sometimes the people that are the farthest away from God are the ones that come, come to Jesus the fastest because they have experienced the darkness and how bad it is to be away from him. And I was talking just a little while ago, we can't hate someone that we don't believe in. Many people claim to be atheists, but they have a hatred toward God. Well, how could a good God do all these things? Like, well, you have an awful lot of feelings toward this God that doesn't exist. But we know in Romans 1 that we all are born with the knowledge of God. So we know that everyone believes in God. They may, they're just suppressing that truth. Share the gospel even with the staunchest atheist 
that has the hardest questions and share it and just bring it back to the gospel. They're going to say, well, how did God do this? How did, well, let's talk about you. Are you a good person? And ask them the Ten Commandments. Get into their heart and say, well, how, if God did judge you, if God does exist, where, you, where will you end up? Make them get into the conscience. Bypass the intellect that's spending so much time trying to suppress the truth and get to their heart. And for us, we need to remember the gospel daily, as we've been mentioning in our Respectable Sins study. God elected you. He saved you. Don't remember the gospel boasting yourself, like, I'm great. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Actually, God chose you because you were pretty much garbage. Like, that's kind of the the, the terms we see in Scripture. Uh, We're pretty much nothing, and God chose us so he could show how great he is, so he could be glorified from saving even me. Uh, He's like, wow, I I saved that dude. That's pretty awesome, right? Yeah, I mean, so, so he will be glorified forever because of saving the simple of the world to shame the wise. And then it should remind us daily as we think about this, it should give us thanksgiving and remind us of what he did on the cross for us. Then moving on to the end of verse 6, he says the testimony given at the proper time. Paul wants us to remember that this testimony was given at the proper time. Jesus Christ came at the exact right time in, in history. God's sovereignty sent him at the right time. He died at the right time. He rose at the right time. He's at the right hand of the Father at the right time, all according to the promises of God. God is sovereign. He's orchestrating everything. And then Paul ends in verse 7. For this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles and faith and truth. Paul wants, wants us to know that he came at the right time as well. He was chosen by God at the right time to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. This Ephesian church was a Gentile church. And he's reminding them of his integrity. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. And although we may not all be preachers, and we, we're certainly not big A apostles. We mentioned a couple weeks ago, we are little A apostles. We are sent out to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we preach the gospel and evangelize our world with the power of Christ. We come to a close today. We've, kind of dis- we've discussed the, the second part of the mission of the church. We talked about doctrinal purity and discipleship and the necessary for, like, the need for that. And we're doing that Thursday night Bible study or book study, which is a lot of Bible in it with respectable sins. If you need a book, let me know. Love to get you into that. It's been great. Um, but we know that it has to, that, that when it comes to evangelism and frankly even discipleship, it must start with prayer. It must start with the power of God. Only he can change us from the inside out and only he can draw people to himself and save people. And next, we must realize that the gospel transcends all persons. Don't put God in a box. No one is too far from being saved. That neighbor that just, is, just continues to rail against God may be closer than you think. God may be working on his heart or her heart. There are many who are going to refuse this free gift, but remember that Christ desires all to be saved, and so may we preach the gospel to everyone. We must preach the gospel like everyone will be saved, but, also, but preach it also with the understanding that not everyone will, so that our performance isn't what's, a, what's we're focused on. And finally, remember that the gospel amends all punishment for those who are saved. How beautiful is that? He paid the entire ransom for our sins. It is finished. There's nothing we can add to it. Once you were saved, he's paid the entire penalty for you. Remember that. Live out the gospel. And let others know the freedom from sin that Christ offers. Our world needs to hear this good news, and I pray that we at Crosspoint are out there sharing it through his power and through prayer and through deed. Let us pray.